Imagine not knowing what your income would be each week. Financial planning would be a nightmare. More than 90% of Vision's income is free will donations. When supporters commit to monthly giving, it provides greater certainty when budgeting for regular expenses and weighing up new opportunities that arise. And knowing we can rely on regular monthly gifts takes some guesswork out of operating a faith ministry. Monthly givers who share our mission are called Visionary Extra Mile Partners. And right now, you are invited to join this growing group of faithful supporters. The amount of your tax-deductible monthly gift is completely up to you. But what is most important is knowing that you are standing with us to reach Australia with the gospel. To become a Visionary Extra Mile partner, click the banner in the Vision app or go to vision.org.au slash extra mile. It only takes a few minutes, but will have an eternal impact. Vision. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Coming up today on The Story. I had come back from prep school, boarding school, to be met by my third brother, little Jimmy, who had a tear in his eye, and he said, Ann, my cat Tigger is in trouble. I said, why? What's wrong? He said, well, she's been having so many kittens that Dad says he's going to have to do something about it. He said, Ann, you can't let that happen. I said, Jimmy, don't worry. I said, "Uh, I believe I can help with this problem. The story. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, today we have part two of Eric Scatterbo's conversation with his all-time favourite storyteller, Ed Somerville, who's the author of the book, When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood. As we heard last time, Ed and his brothers had many mischievous adventures, and today's stories will be no exception. Before we get started, I should tell you that Ed was inspired to write his book so that his grandchildren would know what their granddaddy got up to when he was a boy, and so they could learn that there's more to life than staring at screens all day. There's a whole world out there to explore. You just might not want to do some of the things he and his brothers did. So without any further ado, here's more of Ed Somerville sharing his stories, and once again, he's joining us from his home in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Welcome back to the program, Ed Somerville. Thank you, Eric. It's a great pleasure. Glad to have you with us once again. And today's theme, as we're going to hear some stories about your childhood, the theme is animals. And I understand one animal has something in common with animals in Australia. Is that right? That is right. You know, we have a lot of very different kinds of animals here in the United States, especially in in our part of the country here in the mountains. And, you know, with five little brothers uh, growing up out in the country, we had a lot of contact with animals. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I can imagine. You name it, and mm-hmm. we tried to trap it and turn it into a pet. <laughs> Just everything you can imagine. But one of the most interesting things is that there's an old mountain expression here mm-hmm. that talks about this one marsupial. It's the only marsupial that lives in North America. And, of course, we call it a possum. Now, it's called a Virginia possum. And I'm sorry to say, it's one of the most hideous-looking animals that we have in this part of the world, Mm -hmm. because it resembles a large, ugly rat about the size of a a large cat or a small dog. And the thing is just really ugly. But the expression that I was going to mention is that some people live so far back out in, I guess in Australia you say back out in the bush, 
mm-hmm. uh, we would say back out in the boondocks, that instead of using cats for pets, mm-hmm. they said they live so far out in the mountains, they use possums for pets. Mm-hmm. Well, my brothers and I took that as a challenge. And so we had a little <laughs> uh, kind of a trap that would catch animals alive. And so we took that trap out in the woods and set it with some peanut butter. And we went out every morning to check on it. And after two or three days, sure enough, there, caught in our trap and looking very upset, was this kind of pitiful, ugly possum that was really disturbed and upset that had walked into that trap. So what we did, we took the trap and walked back into our backyard. We carefully opened up one end so I could reach my hand in. Mm -hmm. And I grabbed that thing by its prehensile tail and I tugged it backwards out of the trap and held it high in the air, you know, upside down, like to hang from trees. Those creatures are not the smartest creatures in the world. So when it tries to climb back up itself to bite me on the hand, I could just shake it down. But they are kind of, you need to be careful because of all the animals in this part of the world, our possums have more teeth than any other animal. So oh, I didn't no. want it to get its teeth into yeah. it. Yeah, I can imagine. So I kept yeah. shaking it down and shaking it down. But then, while it had its back to me, I took my other hand and reached out and very gingerly kind of touched it on the back, which the first time it flinched, but after I kept doing it three and four or five times, and then after about 15 and 20 and about 50 and 60 times, it kind of got used to me touching it. Then my little brothers began to reach over and touch it. And one by one, we got to the place where we were able to stroke it and get it, you know, tamed down enough to where it was used to us. And um, after two or three days working with it, we actually had that possum trained. Now, it was still hideously ugly and oh, filthy wow. dirty. So mm. we looked at each other and said, boys, we need to do something to help this possum out. Let's give it a bath. <laughs> so we took a bucket of water, and we took some shampoo, and we dipped our possum in the bucket of water <laughs> and lathered it up real good. And you know what? After it dried out, we started to say, you know, maybe our possum isn't the ugliest creature in these woods. You know, it's got kind of a cute little expression on its face, (laughs) and it can't help that ugly rat-like tail that it's got. We began to get attached to our possum and pet it, (laughs) and that was when we found out that our possum was a female possum. And do you know why? Why? Because it had a pouch in the front, just like a kangaroo would. When we saw that pouch, this idea came over us to play a joke on some of our little buddies from school. (laughs) So we we got a couple of coins, and we stuck them in the possum's pouch, tucked the possum under our arm, and hiked the kilometer or two down to the little town where there Mm -hmm. was a gas station with a Coke machine, just hoping just hoping that some of our school friends would be lounging around the gas station. (laughs) And sure enough, there was little Wally and Buford sitting right there, and when they saw us walk up with a possum, they could not believe their eyes. What is that thing, they said. And we nonchalantly just said, oh, yeah, you know, we live so far out in the country, we use possums for house cats. <laughs> and they said, well, are they any good? And about then I held that possum upside down by its tail, fished into its pocket with my fingers pulled out the two coins and popped them into the Coke machine and got out a nice cold Coca-Cola and uh, passed it around, a big sigh. Those boys looked at us and they said, Dang, we got to get us one of them. (laughs) (laughs) 
I guess they thought the coins, you know, came included with the possum, <laughs> but we, we had a good laugh about that one. So you call that one the possum piggy bank story, is that right? Yeah, in the book, that was called the possum piggy bank. But, you know, we didn't have to use possums for pets. We did have cats. Oh, okay. And there was one in particular that I, I was hoping to tell you about, and that was our cat named Tigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happened? Well, in a strange turn of events, I was able to get a scholarship when it came time to go off to uh, high school. And um, I got a scholarship to one of the most outstanding college prep schools in the whole country and got a top-notch education there. And one of the courses that I took was a course in advanced biology where we had to do experiments on live rats and we would uh, anesthetize them and then we would desex them. Um, Really? We would give them about a month, and then after that, we would go back and we would do an autopsy to see what had happened, you know, because hormonal changes in their bodies because we desexed them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had come back from prep school, boarding school, mm-hmm. back to the little house up in the hills there with my brothers to be met by my third brother, little Jimmy, who had a tear in his eye, and he said, and I've got bad news. He said, my cat Tigger is in trouble. I said, why? What's wrong? He said, well, she's been having so many kittens that Dad says he's going to have to do something about it. And, you know, when you live on a farm and you have a cat that's having too many kittens, when he says he's going to have to do something about it, a lot of times that means, you know, a gunny sack in the river. Oh, no. He said, Ed, you can't, you can't let that happen. Yeah, yeah. I said, Jimmy, don't worry. I said, uh, I have been away to school, and I've learned a few things. And he said, I've gotten an education, and I'm going to put that education to use. I can help you. I said, while I was in school, I learned to do this operation. And now, it was on a rat, but, you know, rat, cat, what's the difference? (laughs) You know, one letter. I said, I believe I can help with this problem. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what came over them, but uh, we went to town, and I went into a drugstore, and the... uh, the proprietor actually sold me a can of ether, you know, a 15-year-old kid. I don't think they would do that these days, yeah, but yeah, I, uh, I came so, home yeah. with some ether. <laughs> I had the boys collect an old uh, aquarium rack out of the refrigerator, a piece of plywood, and then we waited. That's what it was. We waited for my mom and dad to conveniently go off on an <laughs> errand, you know, and go out yeah. and do some shopping or something. Mm-hmm. I said, boys, it's time to deal with Tigger. Well, I had mm-hmm. them all put on their bathrobes, and of course we put them on backwards like surgeons do, you know, and tied them around the back there. We tied Dad's handkerchiefs over our mouths, you know, to try to be sterile as possible. Oh, of course, yeah. We got uh, cleared off the dining room table and draped it with a sheet, and then we got went and got my mom's sewing basket. I said, boys, go get Tigger. So I poured a little ether down into the uh, aquarium. They dropped the cat down into there. We covered it with a piece of plywood. And here's Tigger, you know, meowing and meowing inside the tank for two or three minutes. And then after a while, she starts to look sleepy. And then she falls over on her side, and she's unconscious. I said, boys, it's time to operate. Oh, wow. So we pulled Tigger out of there and stretched her out on the dining room table. And I looked at Jimmy. I said, Jimmy, there's an important job here, and that is anesthesia. Now, I made a little cone out of cardboard, and I put a cotton ball in the bottom of it with a splash of ether in there. And I said... You're to hold this cone over Tigger's face. If she starts breathing quickly, you push it up tighter so she gets more ether. If she starts breathing slowly, you pull it back so Mm -hmm. she gets more oxygen. 
He said, got it, Ed, I'm on it. <laughs> then I grabbed the hair clippers and I buzzed her down one side and got a, a razor blade and began to open her up. Oh, and my goodness. I began goodness. to probe and dig around inside the old Tigger. She was unconscious, didn't feel a thing. And after a while, I found the fallopian tubes. And just like we had done at school, I took a piece of thread and tied off that artery. Unbelievable. I took a scissor and clipped that ovary off of there. Unbelievable. And then we stitched that side back up and flipped her the other side. So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we buzzed that side, opened her up again, and started probing around. And Eric, I hate to say it, but that's when I found out that a cat and a rat might be a little different because <laughs> we could not locate the second ovary. I can't believe you and found the first one. half an hour turned into 45 minutes, and then that ether started getting to all of us. And after an hour, we looked at each other and said... We're going to have to close her back up, you know, ovary or not. We just can't handle any more of this. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo was once again chatting with his favourite storyteller, Ed Somerville, who grew up in the Appalachian Mountains in the eastern part of the United States. As we're hearing, Ed and his brothers decided to give their family cat, Tigger, a hysterectomy. We'll find out how it all turns out when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're back with more of Eric Scadabo chatting with Ed Somerville, author of the book When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood. As we heard before the break, Ed was sharing about the time he and his little brothers decided to give the family cat a hysterectomy, and we're having some troubles. You're not going to believe what happened next, and please do not try this at home. So we stitched her back up. Mm-hmm. Little Jimmy pulled the cone off of her, and sure enough, in a couple of minutes, her eyes kind of fluttered open. We took an aspirin and poked it down her throat and set her gently down into a cardboard box in the corner. And after a little while, she was meowing, and after a little while, she was kind of looking like not that bad for the wear and tear. She might have been through one or two of her eight lives, but she was definitely <laughs> going to make it. And wow. so we thought things were good. Yeah. Until two or three days later, little Jimmy comes running to me and he says, Eddie, Eddie, he says, there's something wrong with Tigger. And I said, what? He said, she's been chewing on the stitches that we put in her and she's chewed them all the way out. He said, she's hanging open like a suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as it happened, mom and dad had gone off on another errand. We put the bathrobes back on and the handkerchiefs. We dropped Tigger back into the fish tank, poured the ether in, clapped the uh, plywood on top, and things were going well until we noticed that this time something was different. Tigger was having a reaction, and it was a bad, strong reaction to the ether where this thick mucus was just coming out of her mouth and hanging down, and it, it was disgusting, but eventually she dropped over asleep. Hmm. So we pulled her out of the fish tank and stretched her on the table, got out in the sewing kit, and we started working on stitching up her side again. 
we finally got one side done. Oh, wow. Little Jimmy was working on his ether cone, you know, administering yeah. the anesthesia. And we flipped her to the other side and had her halfway stitched, well, almost all the way stitched up. And I don't know what happened, but little Jimmy, his attention span just couldn't hold in there. He got distracted, so busy looking at us doing work on the stitches that he forgot to notice if Tigger was breathing or not. Oh, no. And guess what happened? What happened? Tigger stopped breathing. Oh, no. And little Jimmy looked up at me, and he said, Ed, Ed, he said, Tigger, stop breathing. Quick, we've got to do something. Well, as an older brother, you know, you have to be prepared for these kind of emergencies. So I looked at him <laughs> and said, not to worry, Jimmy. I said, I've trained for this. And with that, I pulled a toilet paper tube out of my back pocket, and I said, right here I have a resuscitator, and we're going to get Tigger back breathing again right in the moment here. Just hang in there. So I put that tube one end of my mouth and the other end over Tigger's mouth, and I began to start blowing oxygen down her throat and oh. into her little furry lungs. You know, it was kind of like blowing up a little fuzzy football. <laughs> in with the good air, and you know, as they say, in with the good air, out with the bad. Yeah. The only problem was the bad air was not coming out. Oh, no. And so I puffed a little bit more air in there, and she, the bad air wasn't coming out. So. I began to gently press down on her ribs, you know, trying to get the bad air to come out. Yeah. Nothing. So I pressed harder and nothing. And I thought to myself, if I press any harder, these stitches are all going to pop loose on this cat. And I became desperate in that moment. I knew I had to do something because little Jimmy was crying and he was screaming <laughs> about brain damage setting oh, in on no. his cat. And we had to do something. Yeah. And so in a moment of hysteria... I reached over on that toilet paper tube, and with all my might, I sucked back and inhaled that air. And I found out what it was that was causing the air not to come out. It was a hairball that had been stuck in the back of her throat. It shot through the toilet paper tube and hit me in the back of the throat. Oh, no. And I gagged and fell into the corner of the roof. <laughs> I crushed that toilet paper tube. I spit out that hairball, and I said... That cat will die before I do that. <laughs> <laughs> now, little Jimmy, it was his beloved cat, and he knew that it was up to him. And in that moment, toilet paper tube or no, he went mouth to mouth oh, on no. poor little Tigger and began to puff breaths of life back into her. And if you can believe it, Eric, yeah. that cat started to breathe again. Oh, my goodness. Next thing you know. She was meowing around, and we gave her another really? aspirin. <laughs> and uh, two or three days later, Jimmy came back to me and said, Ed, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, she's chewed her stitches. Oh, out no. Oh, no. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, every man has his limit. <laughs> I said, that's it. She's on her own from here on out. I'm not going to have anything to do with her after that. And believe it or not, Eric, mm -hmm. two or three days afterwards, that cat had healed up grown fur back over the scars, and you would never have known that she had been on the operating table under the knife. That's just about the end of that story, except for six months later, my dad was out in the barn, and he found Tigger with one tiny little kitten beside <laughs> her. And he had promised that there was going to be a consequence if Tigger kept on having kittens. But as he sat there and studied her, he looked into her face and he could see this expression, an expression of like deep suffering. <laughs> and I believe, I believe something touched his heart. And 
He had compassion, Aww. and he decided to let Tigger live. So that was the end of that story. Tigger made it, and um, little Jimmy was happy. Oh, so at 15 years old, your first operation was a success, kind of. Well, the patient yeah, lived anyway. Kind of, but you know, I didn't decide to go into medicine. I heard that um, that doctors never slept, and then God, with his sense of humor, uh, eventually sent me eight children. And <laughs> you can imagine, with eight children, yeah. I haven't slept since. Oh, I can imagine. As a side note, we should say you went on to be a principal of a uh, school, so uh, all that education yeah. helped you out, but you didn't go into medicine. No, no, but I've spent a lot of time with young people. Mm -hmm. And so I went off to college to study to be a teacher. I was going to teach the middle grades. Mm -hmm. And um, that was one reason I went to college. The other reason was, though, I was looking for that beautiful young girl that was going to wind up being my bride and my companion for life, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. That was my ulterior motive, going off to college. And I'd been through about three years of college, and I was getting kind of desperate. And I had not found that exact one. It was just God's perfect gift for my life. Mm -hmm. Now, what I had done is I'd started to work in Christian camps as a camp counselor, which mm -hmm. I was in a dictionary. You could have my picture beside camp counselor because I believe God just made me for that kind of a job. Oh, is that right? With all the experience I'd have with my little brothers <laughs> and all the fun we'd had hiking through the mountains and camping out and swimming in the river and everything. Well... I had been a counselor one summer, and I was getting ready to go back for my second summer, and I wanted to make this summer really special, and I wanted to really have something to share with my campers that year, not just my funny stories or jokes, but I wanted to have something from God. And so I told my parents, it was about a week before the camp was to begin, I said to my parents, I'm going to take a couple of jugs of water and my sleeping bag, and I'm going to hike up into the mountains with my Bible. And I'm going to have a personal retreat. My goal is to read through the whole New Testament and just underline and take notes and be ready for whatever my campers happen to bring to me so that I'll, I'll have God's wisdom and God's Word to mm -hmm. be able to counsel mm -hmm. them with. Yep. And so I headed out the back door and up the mountain. I knew of a little log cabin up, up in the hills. And my dog decided to follow me. I tried to discourage her because I wasn't taking along any dog food, but she was loyal and determined. Mm -hmm. So I got up to the cabin, and I started on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and got into the epistles by that night and stretched out in this little cabin. Now, you have to picture this. It's a log cabin, but it's tiny. It just has room for a little bunk bed made out of slabs of boards, no mattress. It's got a little bit of dirt floor. And where they've cut the logs down to build this cabin, it's all grown back in briars and thorn bushes. So I'm having a great time reading through all of Paul's writings the second day and almost down to, you know, the the books of Peter mm -hmm. and first and second John and it's nighttime that second night. And I've been fasting all this time and uh, just having a wonderful time in the Word. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that second night, I'm awoken by my dog barking furiously. And I sit up, and I'm a country boy, so I'm not too concerned. I'm thinking, mm -hmm. well, maybe there's a a, a possum or a rabbit or a squirrel that's wandered into the cabin. Yeah. I had taken long water in the Bible, but I'd forgotten to take a torch. Mm -hmm. So it's pitch black, and I heard this noise. So I threw a boot at it, and suddenly it froze. Hmm. That's the exact behavior of a reptile. So I picked up another boot and threw it, 
and I heard this sound of a rattling noise, and I oh, thought, no. oh, my word, I'm stuck here in this cabin with a rattlesnake. Oh, no. And so I'm in this cabin in the pitch black on the top of mountain kilometers from home with a rattlesnake. What do you do? Oh, well, no. I didn't panic. Yeah. But I'd heard too many stories about rattlesnakes crawling into campers' sleeping bags because they're cold-blooded, yeah. and they're looking for a warm place. Hmm. And I didn't want that to happen to oh, me. Oh, yeah. yeah, of course. So I got up my nerve, and I scooped up my uh, sleeping bag, and I took one leap to hit the floor and get outside the door, thanking God that I hadn't been bitten. But now what do I do? I'm surrounded by all these acres of thorn bushes and briars. It's pitch black. Oh. What do I do? Where do I go? Yeah. The thought hit me. I'm going to climb up the side of these logs and get on the roof of this cabin, and that's where I'll spend the rest of the night. Hmm. Unfortunately, every time I twitched and turned, I would start sliding down off the roof. So I had to keep <laughs> inching my way back up like a caterpillar. And I got to the place where I was getting a little bit, uh, starting to grumble a little bit. And that's when the Lord said to me, he said, Remind me why you came up on top of this mountain. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I was trying to get closer to God. <laughs> he said, well, there you are on the top of the mountain. Now you're on top of the roof of your cabin. How close are you, do you want to get? <laughs> so I said, okay, you're right. So instead of sleeping, I'll just spend time in prayer. And I began to pray about one thing and another in the summer and the campers and the other counselors and the staff. And I went through my whole list. And it wasn't until the very end that I began to start to be reminded of the deeper things that were deep inside of me, my, my worries and my concerns, mm. and would I ever find that right person that God had for me to marry? Mm -hmm. And so I began to pour my heart out to God, and it was one of those moments. He gave me a picture of a father with strong arms, and he was holding a little child in those arms. And he said, you see that child? I said, yes. He said, that's you. And he said, you see those strong arms? I said, yep. He said, those are my arms. And he said, remember, in my word, it says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he says, if you never meet that girl and you never get married, my grace will always be sufficient for you. And he said, on the other hand, if you get married next week, he said, you'll probably need even more grace, but it will be sufficient for you. Just trust me. Mm. And that night I was able to put my fears and anxieties into God's arms because I knew that he was holding me mm -hmm. in his strong arms. And just then, a raindrop hit me right between the eyes. <laughs> and then another, and another. Oh, no. Oh, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I, I shimmied back down off the side of the, uh, of the roof, down the side of the cabin. And there was a, in that bunk bed, there was just enough early morning light to see that there was no snake on the top bunk. So I got up my courage and took another jump in there and landed on the top bunk, curled up and went to sleep. I slept peacefully and mm. just for several hours. And when I finally woke up, the sun was pouring in and packed my things up and headed down the mountain. Well, one week to the day, I was at camp on the first day of staff training. And, you know, I thought I would be gallant and help the uh, girl counselors, you know, carry their suitcases down to their cabins. Mm -hmm. And on that day, you're never going to guess who I met for the first time. I kind of have an idea. Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie, the girl that would wind up being my wife and the oh. mother of my eight children. Oh. Exactly one week to the day after God had told me not to be afraid and anxious, not to worry, and that his grace would be sufficient. And you know what? Yep. It's been 41 years since we've been married and eight kids and a whole other three or four books full of adventures. 
and God's grace has been sufficient all those years. Well, that was part two of Eric Scatterbo chatting with storyteller extraordinaire Ed Somerville, who's the author of the book, When Granddaddy Was Little Eddie, Tales from an Appalachian Boyhood, which is available online. And boy, Ed's really had some adventures in his childhood and into his young adult years, which were mostly pretty lighthearted. However, next time things take a more serious turn, as Ed begins to share about his life on the mission field in Mexico when a tragic event occurs. But before we end today, I want to share some Bible verses that tie in with what Ed just shared at the end. The Bible says, Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer let your requests be known to God. And God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, we know that if we trust God, we don't have to worry about anything. And we know His grace is sufficient for all our needs. Those are wonderful promises that we can build our lives on. Well, until next time, when we'll hear part three of Ed Somerville's stories, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. As she was standing there waiting for a chicken, she thought he was hitting her until she saw a flash in his hand and realized that he had a knife. And uh, she finally fell to the ground and he took her purse and he took off running down the street. But meanwhile, Debbie has come to me and fallen into my arms, and I'm just holding her, and she says to me, she just, let's pray. She says, pray that the devil does not get any glory out of this. Ed Somerville had quite an adventurous, carefree childhood growing up in the Appalachian Mountains in the eastern part of the United States. But things took a very serious turn when just six weeks into being a missionary with his wife, tragedy struck. We'll find out what happened and how God got the glory through it all next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 